Census Bureau drops renovation of disability questions. An Oregon County's law enforcement approach to mental health has led to litigation. New progress has been made in Kansas regarding persons with disabilities, and we'll talk with one of our nation's most renowned disability law experts on the latest disability-centered Supreme Court case. Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro, and this is Disabilitin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world. Good evening. Tonight we begin our expanded weekly report on the latest developments in the disability community. We understand the expectation of fairness, excellence, and accuracy in delivering to you a meaningful report on the happenings of disability in our world, and we intend to meet it. In a world where disability consists of multiple definitions, each interpretation may be met with a variety of reactions, such was the case last week when the United States Census Bureau announced that proposed changes to how it would define disability in its largest survey would be dropped. Such changes were first announced last October in preparation for 2025 and would have rewarded the six questions regarding disability in the survey. Currently, the disability census questions in the Community Access Survey ask respondents to answer yes or no if they experience difficulty or serious difficulty with vision, hearing, concentration, decision-making, and in performing everyday activities such as walking, climbing, dressing, or bathing. If any of the questions are answered with yes, the subject qualifies as having a disability. However, according to opponents of the new changes, a respondent would only qualify as an individual with a disability under the survey if they rated the level of difficulty they had performing multiple rather than individual activities on a scale from no, some, difficulty, or a lot of difficulty as well as the most severe cannot-do-at-all option. Opponents argued that such a requirement would reduce the number of persons with disabilities accounted for in the survey, the Census Bureau's largest in terms of data collection for determining federal funding for housing, health care, and civil rights. In a report by the Associated Press released February 7th, quote, the percentage of respondents who were defined as having a disability went from 13.9, using the current questions, to 8.1% under the proposed changes. When the definition was expanded to include some difficulty, it grew to 31.7%. In disability law news, the issue of law enforcement approach to individuals with disabilities has been brought to the legal forefront in Washington County, Oregon, the state's second largest county. A lawsuit filed in Portland's U.S. District Court by disability nonprofit Disability Rights Oregon contends that Washington County harms individuals with disabilities by sending armed police officers instead of behavioral health teams when assisting people during a mental health crisis. The nonprofit argues that the Washington County Sheriff's Office has become the default agency in mental health crises since the county dispatcher system sends 911 calls for mental health assistance to police first. Although Washington County has a mental health response team, Issues range from a lack of nighttime availability for the team to the team being called only after the police have been informed. The suit was filed after Disability Rights Oregon conducted a year-long investigation with the state's American Civil Liberties Union on the matter. After analyzing emergency call data, it was found that, quote, between 2020 and 2022, the Washington County Sheriff's Office handled about 12,000 calls, 
but dispatchers only sent a mobile crisis team consisting of mental health experts for about only 100 calls. In responding to news outlets about the lawsuit, county spokesperson Julie McLeod expressed disappointment in the filing and cited the crisis team's response to, quote, more than 2,100 calls in 2022. McLeod also cited a, quote, successful initiative in which deputies team up with clinicians. The state of Kansas is set to transition workers with disabilities away from segregated employment. A bill signed by Kansas Governor Laura Kelly four days ago seeks to transition workers with disabilities away from participation in a controversial labor practice and creates a grant program called the Sheltered Workshop Transition Grant, which provides tax credits for businesses that hire disabled individuals to integrated employment, while also eliminating the minimum work hour requirement for disabled Kansans to qualify for health insurance coverage. For 85 years, a minimum wage has been set for Americans across the country, but this wage has not been the same for those with disabilities. Since 1938, Section 14C of the Fair Labor Standards Act, which established a minimum wage in the United States, has qualified certain employers of workers with disabilities for certificates administered by the Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division. If their application for such certificates is approved, employers can, under the pretense of preventing exclusion of disabled workers from the workforce, may pay such workers a wage level below the federal minimum wage, which is known as subminimum wage. To set the wage, employers conduct a test within a disabled worker's first month of employment. The test consists of timing how long it takes a person with a disability to complete certain tasks when compared to a non-disabled worker's efforts. The resulting number is then multiplied by the, quote, prevailing hourly wage for the same type of work. The final calculation is the worker's productivity rate, which is subject to change based on progress made over time and can be phased out if a worker with a disability reaches the same level of productivity as their non-disabled colleagues. One of the employers approved to pay subminimum wages is Community Rehabilitation Programs, previously known as Sheltered Workshops by the United States Wage and Hour Division of the Department of Labor. These programs offer both medical rehabilitation alongside employment for individuals with disabilities. Within the first month of employment in these programs, and if approved for a certificate, community rehabilitation programs, or CRP employers, must determine the disabled employee's productivity rate and review it every six months to determine whether to raise said worker's wage. As of this year, 16 states have enacted legislation to phase out such a practice, with Kansas set to become the 17th to do so. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill in recent years, Legislation passed has included the 2014 Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, or WIOA, which in Section 11 requires that community rehabilitation program employers with a 14C certificate provide career counseling during a disabled individual's first six months of employment and annually thereafter. As for those who favor subminimum wage, arguments include concerns that rising wages would increase labor costs leading to the closing of such workshops and the unemployment of thousands of disabled workers, a concern which was mentioned in a 2020 report by the United States Commission of Civil Rights, which argued for further regulation of subminimum wage. Since October, the Department of Labor has been reviewing the practice. And now we offer a debrief on the latest Supreme Court case concerning disability, Lawfer v. Atchison. In its unanimous ruling filed last month, 
the justices brought disability advocates and business owners to the edge of their seats. I'll be discussing the decision with William Gorn, one of our nation's most renowned experts on disability law. Recently, the Supreme Court ruled on the case of Lawfer v. Atchison, which questioned the standing of ADA testers. So today, we are joined by William Gorin, who is one of our country's foremost experts of the Americans with Disabilities and Rehabilitation Acts. Since 1990, he's been advising on ADA compliance as both an attorney and professor. Mr. Gorin seeks to help employers, governmental entities, businesses, and individuals understand the ADA, or Americans with Disabilities Act, to ensure accessibility in their endeavors. Mr. Gorin is the author of Understanding the Americans with Disabilities Act, published by the American Bar Association in 2013. He has also penned numerous other articles on the rights of persons with disabilities and publishes the Understanding the ADA blog, which discusses current topics relating to the ADA. So, Mr. Gorn, I'd like to welcome you to the Disabulletin. Pleasure to be here. So I'd just like to begin by asking about the most recent court case, Lawfer v. Atchison. And Deborah Lawfer sued a hotel company in Maine because the hotel's website didn't provide adequate accessibility details, even though she had no reason to uh, stay there. Is that correct so far? Yeah, that's correct. Lawfer argued that she had the grounds to sue based on a regulation under the Department of Justice, known as the Reservation Rule, which says hotels with respect to reservations need to describe accessible features in enough detail so that individuals with disabilities can determine if they'll stay there. So although the court dismissed the case as it had already been dropped by Lawfer, how do you believe the Supreme Court would rule if such a case were presented in its entirety? I think Justice Thomas's concurrence is probably along the lines of where it would go. The ADA statutory provisions are such that, well, it depends how far they want to go. But basically, there has to be a particularized injury. And just because you notice something is out of whack, unless you can show that it personally affects you, i.e. you're really going to show up at that place or you try to access that place in some way, then you're not going to have a, a chance to pursue a claim. Reading your blog about the case, I know one of the main concerns Justice Thomas had was that of informational injury, and he cited the 1982 case of Havens Realty v. Coleman now, what distinguished the court's ruling in that case from this one, or what made that ruling similar? There is no court's ruling on that particular issue in this case. The majority opinion dismisses the case as moot, the end, full stop. Justice Thomas would have said, well, we could have dismissed the case as moot and still reached the merits, and they could have done that, and they elected not to for whatever reason. Haven's Realty is a Fair Housing Act case. And in that case, the Supreme Court said that a black tester, African-American tester, had the right to show up at a leasing unit and pretend to be somebody who wanted to lease the apartment, even though he had no intention of ever leasing. And the Supreme Court said, based on the Fair Housing Act statutory language, which specifically talks about the right to accurate information and also talks about the emotional distress that goes along with being lied to because of a protected characteristic that a tester had standing to proceed with a Fair Housing Act claim. 
if this kind of thing comes before the court, a heck of an argument can be created that because of the statutory language in Title III of the ADA and the remedies that go with it, Haven Realty has nothing to do with the ADA whatsoever. And that the ADA, you look at the remedies and you look at the statutory provisions, testers don't have standing at all. Now, if they want to not go that far, they could go and say, well, if you can show a particularized injury, then you're not exactly a tester, but you might be sort of a tester, depending on how lenient they want to be with what is a particularized injury. So what I hear you saying, and correct me if I'm wrong as well, under the Fair Housing Act, it specifically states the idea of informational injury, whereas under the Americans with Disabilities Act, that is not specified or in any of the language. That's correct. The ADA divided into five titles, three of which commonly get litigated. Title I is employment. Title II is non-federal governmental entity, regardless of size. Title III is places of public accommodation. Title IV is telecommunications. I rarely see that litigated. Title V is miscellaneous matters. The most common things we think of in the miscellaneous matters section is retaliation and interference. There's basically three titles plus one that commonly get litigated. This case involves Title III, which is places of public accommodations. The hotel is undoubtedly a place of public accommodation. That's obvious. But we're talking about a website. And then the question becomes, is the website a place of public accommodation? And there's four different theories on that. The courts go four different ways. So here we have a separate thing called a reservation rule, which the DOJ put out. And as you said, the reservation rule idea is to allow a person with a disability to go to a website and say, okay, I can now understand whether I want to book here or not. I'm not sure how effective that rule is. I find that whole thing fascinating on a personal level because I'm deaf and without my hearing aid, I'm not hearing anything. I have a 70 to 120 decibel central neural bilateral hearing loss, which means I'm severely to profoundly hard of hearing. I am a deaf individual. I don't know ASL. So if I'm staying by myself in a hotel room, not having it be hearing accessible is a safety issue for me. I can't tell you how many times I've gone on a website and you're looking at information and it'll say hearing accessible. And then you show up to the hotel and ain't so. I also can't tell you how many times I've called the reservation unit and have been told, oh yeah, you'll have a hearing accessible room. And then I show up at the hotel and they don't have a clue. So to me, the reservation rule intent is good at least in terms of my personal experience as a deaf individual with a small D, uh, not a capital D, there's a difference. The second question that I know you asked, why do hotels seem not to get this? I don't know. The National Association of the Deaf is certainly very aware of this. They have to be. They are certainly interested in taking on these cases. Part of it may be that not a lot of deaf and hard of hearing people who are death proud, show up at hotels, and then when they're denied, they want to make a deal out of it by either contacting NAT or going to DOJ. All I know is that this shouldn't be happening, and it happens all the time. Just to apply your experience as well, since you're making the effort to go to the hotel, again, 50-50 chance that they do have an accessible room, 
wouldn't that qualify as an injury since you made the effort to go to the yeah, hotel? Yeah, well, sure. See, that, that's a difference. First of all, all Laufer did was go to a website. She didn't like what she saw on the website she sued. Um, I didn't go to a website, but even if I did, I would have called. Now the fact that I called, I'm showing an intent to stay. If they're going to say on that phone call, nah, this isn't a place for you, we don't have a place like that, I absolutely have standing. I absolutely do. If I show up at the hotel, which I'm going to, and it's not a hearing accessible room, I absolutely have standing because I, it is a particularized injury to me. I made the effort. I called. I talked to the hotel. Not only did I talk to the hotel, that would have been enough. I also then show up. So that's not the same thing. I'm not a tester. I'm not a tester. A tester is someone that says, I'm just in it for a greater good, and this doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm not a tester at all. This is something that has to do with me. And that's, that's the big difference. The question is, under the Fair Housing Act, someone who's in it for the greater good, Hispanic individual, black individual, Asian, any ethnic group you want to go to, LGBTQ, you name it, they can show up and say, well, we want to rent, we want to buy this condo, we want to buy this house. And if they get shown the door because of that protected characteristic, the Fair Housing Act is set up. So that is in play. That's not how the ADA is set up. And in my case that I've just gone over, I'm not a tester at all. I want to stay there. Are you giving me the information I need to be able to stay there? I am supremely skeptical based on my own experience that if I went online, I could believe what I see. So I go ahead and make the phone call. So I guess what it comes down to is the language of the law. What's frustrating to me is that the ADA has been around since 1990, and this is 2024. So and the ADA went into effect in 1991 and 92. So what's going on here? Um, the other thing, another thing that I find particularly frustrating with hotels is I'm clumsy. I'm not very good in physical space. I'm six, one and a half. I'm mobile. Another thing these hotels are doing is they're saying, okay, we have a hearing accessible room, but if you want that room, it also has to be a room that would be for someone who has mobility impairment. In other words, a wheelchair user. And well, I'm six, one and a half and have joint issues. I don't really enjoy bending down to hang my stuff, stuff up in the closet. I also don't like the fact that I, all these grab bars are around and I could run into them. And then ultimately, there's a person in a wheelchair that could have really used that room, and I just took it. And I can use any room, providing you put in the proper equipment to make that room accessible. Uh, you're seeing a lot of hotels, they could do it portably, but you're seeing a lot of hotels that try to design it uh, in terms of the room itself, and they don't always get it right. There's a lot of lawyers consultants out there talking about the ADA, that's fine. But what they're not talking about is the deep knowledge of the ADA and combining it with the perspective of a person with a disability. And so much with the ADA is understanding the mindset of a person with a disability. Because if you didn't know the black letter law and you say, okay, here's what the law tells me I can do, and you don't understand the mindset of a person with a disability, well, I think you just walked yourself into 
quite probable litigation and nastiness that you didn't need to walk into. It seems to me that it's an issue of transparency between the non-disabled and the disabled community. That leads to another question, which is, would it be fair to say that you could figure out how a judge might view a disability rights situation based upon whether they're a Republican or a Democrat? And the answer is absolutely not. My experience has been that people get disabilities if either they have a disability, they have a close family member with a disability, or they have a buddy with a disability. And disability isn't partisan. Disability is going to happen to all of us at some point, sooner or later. And it doesn't matter what, what your political views were. So there is that. And then the question is, who is training the judges? But who's training the federal judges? Who's training the judges in other states? I routinely get a call once a month without exception, and it's usually family court where a judge completely does not get their obligation to accommodate a person with a disability in their courtroom. They just don't get it. And without exception, I get that call once a month, and it becomes quite complicated to remedy that. And there are very few lawyers who walk into that. I don't spearhead litigation myself, but the general... There is a general problem with uh, the non-disabled community and even the disabled community understanding what the law is and is not. And that's, that's my personal mission is demystifying what the ADA and related laws are and are not. That really leads me to the final question on this subject, which is what implications does this have for future ADA test cases, specifically how testers under the ADA are defined? Lauper dismissed the case as moot, dead, dead, dead. But Thomas kind of telegraphing where he would go. And I think even the Department of Justice, the the Biden administration, Department of Justice under Merrick Garland, has been very, very good about understanding the rights of people with disabilities and advocating for the rights of people with disabilities. And again, I don't want people to think that I'm strictly a plaintiff lawyer. I'm not. I'm not a plaintiff lawyer, I'm not a defense lawyer. I'm everything. I work on the plaintiff side, I work on the defense side, I'm neutral. My big thing is just spreading the word about what it is and isn't. Even the Department of Justice said that Laufer should lose. So Laufer was gonna lose. The question was how bad? And the best option was the moot, and they went the moot option. But even DOJ said, it's going to the internet and saying, hey, something's wrong, not good enough. There has to be that phone call. There has to be that visit to the hotel. There's got to be something more. Even DOJ said that in their briefs. So an argument can be created to say there is no such thing as a tester under Title III of the ADA. You could say that. You could also say, well, no, maybe there's no such thing as a tester, but we're not going to require a lot. So let's say they go to the website and they see that there's a hearing accessible room and they click on the room and there's absolutely nothing in the room when they clicked it on to list what is hearing accessible. So they still have no clue. So therefore they don't stay at that hotel. But they go and decide to make another trip somewhere and say, well, I didn't decide to stay at this hotel because I didn't get enough information. But then I went on the website and did get enough information at another hotel where I made a call and got enough information. Now I think they're, they're standing there. So depends on how far they want to go with this.
particular identity is like a spectrum, so to speak, not to be offensive, but a spectrum. Do we need a lot or do we need a little or do we need some? That brought up one more question as well. Title three of the ADA versus the reservation rule. How enforceable is the reservation rule when it comes to Title III of the ADA? Is the reservation rule as enforceable as Title III, or are they polar opposites? The reservation rule is a final regulation. For now, if something is a final regulation, it's entitled to be considered the same thing as law. The Supreme Court has before it a case that asked the question, how much persuasiveness should final regulation be given? They have visited that question with respect to guidances. We're talking about Chevron deference. Chevron deference says if there's a final regulation, that regulation automatically stands. So Chevron versus Department of Natural Resources. You have to be specific in my world because there's a very, very famous case also involving Chevron that talks about direct threat, and that's Chevron versus Ekazabal. It used to be that if there was an interpretation of that regulation, such as in a guidance, technical assistance, memorandum, or whatever, that regulation was likely to stand. The Supreme Court, in a case called Kaiser versus Wilkie, said interpretations of agency regulation, for that to be given controlling authority by a court, there's a lot of hoops that have to be gone through first. The case that the Supreme Court is considering now asked whether this idea that just because there's a final regulation it automatically is controlling authority, I think they're likely to kaiserize Chevron, which is they're not going to get rid of it, but they're going to say that all the stuff we said in Kaiser versus Wilkie about hoops that you have to go through in order to have that guidance or interpretation of an agency regulation be given controlling authority, you're going to have to do that with final regulation too. I think that's where it's headed, but predicting the Supreme Court is a real hazardous business. If you were to predict the Supreme Court on Lauper, you probably would have said that there was a majority of folks that would say a tester is not a thing under Title III of the ADA, and they didn't do that. It's interesting that you mentioned Chevron because normally if the case isn't cut and dry, you would refer to agency regulations. So instead of that, though, they referred to Title III of the ADA rather than the regulation. They went right to statutes. So it all comes down to a question of agency regulation or deference. Yeah, that's one way to look at it, yes. This was the first part of a 30-minute interview conducted with Mr. William Gorn on the case of Lawfer v. Atchison. Next week, we'll conclude our discussion by discussing disability law cases on the horizon. This bulletin is created and produced by me, Abe Shapiro. Our theme music is Baseball is More Than a Game, by the George Romanus Sound. Abe Shapiro, WFHB News, Live and Learn.